mighty London came an Irishman one day. As the streets are paved with gold, sure everyone was gay. Singing songs of Piccadilly, Fern and Leicester Square. Till Paddy got excited, then he shouted to them there. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Historian Explaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. This will be the fifth installment in my series on the history of the United States in 100 objects. And this particular object, which is a collection of small Venetian glass beads, is possibly the earliest, it's certainly one of the earliest European objects found in the United States from after Columbus's contact with America. The oldest, the number one oldest European object ever found in the United States is the main Norse coin, which goes back to the 12th century and which was found uh, at a site on the coast of Maine. And I talked about that in my last installment, which is only on Patreon for patrons. So if you're interested, uh, please go to Patreon and contribute whatever you can. But I'm now going to go to uh, the next object in the series, which is also of European origin and how it was found in America, how it made its way to this particular site in America, is a mystery, and it's something that archaeologists are investigating and debating uh, even today as we speak. And I'll talk about the best, strongest current explanation of what these beads are and how they ended up here. So what are they? Well, they're nine matching chevron-patterned glass beads made out of red, blue, and clear glass, produced most likely in Venice, dated to around 1500 or the early 1500s, and found at the so-called glass site in Telfair County, Georgia, beginning in 2006. So how did these beads turn up? Well, the first one was found at this site in a remote rural part of Telfair County, Georgia, closest to the town of McRae, when a high school student who was volunteering at the dig site found one of the beads in her sifting pan and alerted the head archaeologist, Dennis Blanton, of James Madison University. And Blanton reportedly was very shocked and confused to see that she had found this bead. Why? Well, the site that they were excavating in Telfair County was understood to be a Native American site. And Blanton was hoping to find the remains of a later Spanish mission from the 1600s. But in this particular spot, they were instead finding entirely Native American objects dated to the early and mid 1500s. So they assumed it to be all from before these particular Native American groups had had any contact with Europeans. And other objects they had found were typical of indigenous people in that region, such as tobacco pipes and pottery in indigenous American styles. 
But the glass bead was immediately clearly European. For one thing, pre-Columbian Americans did not make glass. They did not have that technology. Glass making goes back to the Eastern Mediterranean in the Roman era. And before that, there was some primitive glass paste made in Egypt called faience, but it doesn't seem that pre-Columbian Americans ever discovered or used glass making. And these particular beads are in vibrant colors, as hopefully you can see in the picture, and they are definitely typical of Venetian glass. And the chevron style that we see uh, in these beads <clears throat> has previously been associated with the Spanish explorer and conquistador Hernando de Soto, who passed through unknown parts of North America in the early 1500s. So it immediately came to his mind that possibly this bead somehow originated from the Hernando de Soto expedition, or Entrada, as it was called, in 1539 to 41. But the single item unto itself was not enough to establish that definite connection. So if we look at the beads, they have, if we look at the ends, they have a sort of star pattern with radiating spikes of color. And these chevron pattern beads are made from seven layers of glass folded together and twisted into a rod and then cut into bead-shaped pieces. So it's a very complicated, sophisticated glass-making technique. And it seems that chevron beads like this began to be made in Venice in the late 1300s and continued until the 1500s, and they were especially often used because of their striking pattern. They were used as trade items and were brought by Europeans particularly to Africa and also to America. So it's very suggestive that these might be connected to European explorers and particularly to de Soto, who is known to have given some beads of this basic type to other indigenous Americans. So who is Hernando de Soto? Well, he was the first European person to travel along with his army of several hundred followers to travel into the interior of North America, basically. Uh, so there had previously been Norse uh, Viking settlers along the Atlantic coast. Also, Ponce de Leon had ventured and made brief landings in Florida from Cuba in the beginning of the 1500s, but no remnants of any sort of permanent or lasting settlement, even in Florida, has been found from Ponce de Leon. There also was a few years later a uh, a, a disastrous and... Uh, failed Narvaez expedition into Florida, the survivors of which built boats and were able to sail across the Gulf of Mexico to Texas and venture from Texas down back to Spanish territory in Mexico. But none of them ever ventured up uh, into the interior of the continent and reached any sort of major sites like the Appalachian Mountains or the Mississippi River. Uh, Hernando de Soto's company was the first to do this, and he's often referred to by Americans as the first to see the Mississippi River. Now, uh, it's important to note that Hernando de Soto did not attach any particular significance to the Mississippi, although that ends up being sort of his claim to fame now. To him, it was just a large waterway that sort of stood in the way of his advance. What he was interested in was the indigenous societies, 
that he encountered. He was interested in the large cities and kingdoms that he found in the interior of the continent. And that's really why he was historically important. And that's why his accounts of his travels uh, that were passed down through the centuries are important to history. So let's back up and say a bit more about who De Soto himself was and hence why it's significant that these particular beads were found at this particular site in Georgia. Well, Hernando de Soto was born in Extremadura, a generally impoverished, sort of rugged interior region of Spain in the 1490s or maybe 1500. And he came over to the New World in 1520 as an adventurer, hoping to find fortune, success, power. And he was from a Hidalgo family, meaning a sort of minor noble family with a minor title, <clears throat> but no significant lands or estates. And this Hidalgo class in interior regions like Extremadura and La Mancha were really the main recruiting ground, the grist uh, or the, the fodder for this conquistador campaign into America. So uh, Cortes, for example, was also a Hidalgo from the same basic region of Spain. Okay. And these were young men who had these titles, who had, who felt that they had a lot of legacy to live up to, but had no opportunity and often were even impoverished in Spain. And they made for sort of easy pickings for adventurers who wanted to take them off on these sort of mad, violent campaigns and expeditions into the New World. So when De Soto came over and ventured to North America in 1520, he first joined a small company that helped to conquer Nicaragua in Central America, and he was granted an encomienda, meaning the right to demand labor from the indigenous people in a particular zone of Nicaragua. In his campaign in Central America, he became known for ruthlessness, uh, courage, and for sort of rule-bending or rule-breaking, which was fairly widespread among conquistadores, but Hernando de Soto was especially notorious for using kidnapping, threats, and extortion to get money, manpower, weapons and supplies and so on from the indigenous people. After he accepted this encomienda in Nicaragua, he found that he wasn't gaining as much fortune and power as he had hoped for. So he pressed further and he set out on an expedition to sail around the Yucatan Peninsula into the Gulf of Mexico, hoping to find a passageway to the Pacific Ocean. So in a sense, he was the beginning of this long European quest to find a so-called Northwest Passage, connecting the Atlantic to the Pacific by sea. And not surprisingly, of course, he didn't find any, right? Mexico is there in the way. So after this setback, he then joined Pizarro's venture down into South America. And he was named a captain of Pizarro's expedition, and became an important kind of right-hand man to this, you know, second most famous and most important conquistador after Cortes. So he was very important in this expedition, which ventured down into the Andes 
and ended up capturing Peru, the next large uh, imperial nation in the Americas after Mexico. He took part in the ambush that captured the emperor Atahualpa, and he was part of the contingent that held Atahualpa captive, and reportedly De Soto even befriended the emperor and taught him chess. Later, other members of Pizarro's company executed Atahualpa, and De Soto set off with a contingent to strike first at the Incan capital at Cuzco before the Incans struck back at them, and he was able to help capture and then plunder Cuzco. And this was the first source of his real wealth, was the loot that he gained from the Incan capital at Cuzco. However, he was denied an office in the new Viceroyalty of Peru. So once the Spanish consolidated control of most of the Incan Empire, uh, politics shook out in such a way that he didn't get uh, the kind of office he'd hoped for. And so uh, dissatisfied and disillusioned, in 1536 he went back to Spain. So after 16 years in America, he goes back to Spain, and he's able to finagle a new commission from the Spanish crown. And he receives the right to conquer Florida on the understanding that he will colonize the country within four years. Okay, so Florida was the general term, you know, it means flowery place. It's the general term that the Spanish were using for the sort of subtropical peninsula above Cuba and also the entire kind of unknown, unexplored continent beyond that. And so this was a very ambitious quest to imagine that he was going to conquer Florida. And he gathered together 620 men into his company of adventurers. And it's when conquistadores went out into the New World from Spain, they usually, they were not commanding regular army units, okay? They were getting together sort of uh, desperate or reckless men of various sorts who were willing to take up arms in the hopes of getting loot or glory or royal offices of some sort. So these other men were joining with De Soto, much like De Soto had joined together into these expeditions into Nicaragua and Peru. So he got together 600, 620 Spanish and Portuguese men, also hundreds of horses and pigs to bring with them for work and for food, and set out on a fleet of ships. And in 1539, they landed on the western coast of Florida. So in this peninsula that they were vaguely aware of before from Ponce de Leon and Narvaez, but still knew very little about. From here, De Soto's expedition set out uh, northward, basically collecting, hunting, plundering, stealing, whatever they had to do to survive off of the land and off of the indigenous people, and marched northward close to the eastern seaboard of North America through what's now probably Georgia, South Carolina, and finally North Carolina, before then turning westward in hope of finding gold, crossed through the Appalachians, further through the southeast, probably Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, crossed the Mississippi River, and shortly thereafter, Hernando de Soto himself died of a fever, 
while the rest continued on and returned to Spanish territory in Mexico. Now, this is the rough route that we can say that De Soto and his men took, northward to North Carolina, then westward to the Mississippi. But the exact route, where did they go precisely, and whom did they meet, and what exactly happened in these encounters, is intensely debated. It's very uncertain. And there are a lot of reasons why it's uncertain. For one, there are four different accounts written of De Soto's expedition, three of them by witnesses and one by a later chronicler who collected accounts. And they're not all perfectly consistent with each other. They refer to cities, kingdoms, peoples that De Soto encountered on this journey, but they're not easy to match up to what we know of these societies because the large societies that De Soto encountered are almost all gone to one degree or another. They were societies that were already apparently in decline, if not necessarily collapse, in the 1500s. And the diseases that the Spanish introduced as they brought you know, pathogens causing smallpox, typhus, influenza, and other illnesses uh, touched off epidemics that further decimated these societies. So not a lot of record has been kept. There is some, there are descendants, and there are, you might say, uh, successors to these older ancient societies still surviving in the United States, and some of them do have oral histories of the encounters with DeSoto, but they're fairly scant. And most importantly, very little archaeological remains have been found, okay? The DeSoto army was very large, but they were very mobile. They set up only very temporary encampments. Sometimes they simply encamped in makeshift structures that had been set up and abandoned by indigenous people. Uh, they didn't leave behind any large, long-lasting sites like you might find at Jamestown or Lons Omido in Newfoundland. They were constantly moving. The societies that they encountered sometimes uh, repelled them, destroyed the remains of their encampments, and the places that they traveled through were not exactly desert. You know, we're not talking about tombs in the Egyptian desert where it's perfectly dry and calm and still. Uh, we're talking about woodlands, subtropical forest, swampland, places where the environment has effectively covered over the remains of even the large towns and cities that probably existed here. So it's extremely difficult to pin down his precise uh, movements and activities in this entrada through North America. But it's very important to figure out anything we can about them because these accounts of De Soto's Entrada are one of the few written sources we have about those societies that existed in the pre-Columbian era and the contact era. So as the Spanish progressed, they often threatened, extorted food, laborers, uh, supplies from indigenous people that they encountered. They used kidnapping. They used sabotage, uh, torching, 
or uh, demolishing indigenous towns and and encampments, uh, all the sort of things that De Soto had done previously in Central America and in Peru. Okay, so they were basically using the conquering template that was already familiar by this time and trying at least to apply it to this new North American world. And in a lot of ways, this expedition was really a rampage. Uh, thousands reportedly were killed. This is even according to De Soto's own records. Thousands were killed, especially in large battles in what's now Alabama. And hundreds of Spanish died as well from combat, from skirmishes and assassinations, and also from diseases. The Spanish were able to survive, at least most of them, and get back to Spanish territory, mainly because they had enormous technological advantages, right? So they could face off against large, powerful states and kingdoms because they had, for, for one thing, horses and steel weapons, okay? Steel uh, armor, swords, axes, and so on, and also, to some degree, firearms, although those were not as crucial uh, in this kind of combat as steel blade weapons were. So there are only small archaeological finds that have been located in a few places, including in northern Florida and in Georgia, that show with some confidence that DeSoto did pass through these areas, and that can be tentatively matched to some of the towns and cities that are described in the Spanish records, or to oral records that have been passed down among indigenous people. Okay, accounts of the expedition do describe many large, rich cities with powerful rulers commanding significant armies of well-trained warriors, that are sometimes able to block or at least harass the Spanish progress. And we know a certain amount about these societies in the Spanish records because the Spanish were able to communicate with many of them through a man named Ortiz, who was a captive from that earlier abandoned Narvaez expedition that I mentioned in Florida, and who was uh, taken as a kind of uh, diplomatic prisoner, you might say, by the Timucua people in Florida, and he was able to learn their language as well as possibly other indigenous languages. And through a sort of network of translators and interpreters, this allowed the Spanish to speak with many of these uh, indigenous leaders. And it seems from De Soto's behavior and from his writings, it seems clear that he firstly was interested in gold, okay, that's sort of a given, right? Gold was the only object, the only material of great enough value to be worth shipping all the way back to Europe from America, so that was crucially strategically important. But as part of this quest, De Soto really wanted to find the biggest, richest, cities and societies that he could, okay? He gravitated towards large, powerful cities and kingdoms. Uh, this, this was his whole outlook and strategy, okay? He wanted to recreate what had happened in Peru, okay? And 
if he had been lucky, there would have been another large, single, unified, powerful empire with a large, single emperor who could be attacked or captured, like Atahualpa was in Peru, and for that matter, like, uh, like Moctezuma was in Mexico. Okay, so he was hoping to repeat that performance. And he might have come close because, as we said, there were significant cities and powerful societies in the southeast that were basically the surviving remnants of the Mississippian civilization. Okay, so whereas Cahokia and Kaskaskia up further north had been largely abandoned, uh, these other towns and cities largely built on hills in the southeast, in Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, were still there and were still uh, thriving to some degree. And it's probably because of climate change, because of the cooling climate in the Little Ice Age, that those larger cities farther up in the Mississippi Basin were failing, whereas further south, they were still at least hanging on. So there was something there that DeSoto could possibly try to conquer, but there was not the sort of uh, coherent empire with a road system and communication system and fortresses and granaries, anything like the scale of the Inca Empire in South America. So because there wasn't a clear head ruling over the entire region that they called Florida, there was no one, no way to decapitate it. Right? And so instead you have this kind of constant uh, sort of blundering, rampaging search through the continent for something that is not quite there and that they're never able to attain. A kind of unifying thread that we can see connecting the ancient Mississippian civilization to these societies that De Soto and his followers described is the temples built on top of large earthwork mounds. Okay, this is kind of the calling card of the Mississippian society. Reportedly, these peoples that De Soto encountered had similar monuments. And to some degree, later societies like the Creek and the Cherokee also did the same on up into the 18th and 19th centuries. So these groups that Americans called the five civilized tribes are probably successors or descendants in some way, whether culturally or literally descendants of these sort of late Mississippian kingdoms. So in a way, we can see DeSoto's expedition as the only encounter or the closest thing that ever came came to happening to an encounter between the Mississippian society, that sort of super powerful civilization of the Middle Ages in North America with Europeans. Okay, this is, this is the closest they ever sort of came to coming face to face. And it seems it was generally, for the most part, it was a violent encounter. It was a disaster in that it spread these infectious diseases that further weakened what was left of these societies in the southeast. It also changed the environment in lasting ways, for example, by introducing pigs into the American forests and the wild boars that one can still find in the forests in the southeast and that many people have survived by hunting for centuries. It seems started from pigs that escaped from this DeSoto expedition. Also, more importantly, the accounts that DeSoto made of these large, powerful societies with 
significant wealth uh, that he was nonetheless often able to defeat, these accounts were later translated into English Okay, in the 1600s. And one English adventurer, Hakloit, uh, translated uh, complete reports of De Soto's expeditions into English, which then in turn helped to inspire English colonization into America. Okay, it encouraged people to want to venture out to look for gold in this new continent and to invest and give money and, and patronage to colonization ventures. So ironically, uh, although De Soto himself was Spanish and his expedition was patronized by Spain, he helped to pave the way for much of these lands becoming English and then American territory. From the point of view of historians, though, it's most important as a source of information on Native American societies. Okay, where were they located? How big were they? How did they work? Uh, who had power? Uh, what resources did they have? These these peoples that we know so little about. This is one of the biggest clues you can you can possibly get, and. In a sense, De Soto was a kind of anthropologist. You know, although he was out to conquer and to plunder, he was surprisingly meticulous about learning and recording the workings of these peoples. Okay, this is a very distinctively Spanish kind of approach to colonization, right? The Spanish wanted to know who had power and where and how do we seize control of them. They didn't simply think, uh, these are savages, and we just have to push them out of the way. Okay, it's a different kind of approach to conquest from what the French and especially the British would do. Okay, so these are all reasons why it's very important to know if that bead that was found in 2006 at the site in Telfair County, Georgia, did in fact come from Hernando de Soto. If it did, that would suggest that there was some sort of contact, maybe direct, maybe indirect, between De Soto's army and the particular Native American society who lived there at that site. And if so, possibly we can then gain an understanding of who they were and what their society was like with help from De Soto's reports. So the bead spurred on archaeologists to dig further, literally, at that particular uh, excavation in Telfair County. And since 2006, eight other beads of the same type have been found. Okay, enough that we can suspect they may have been together on a small chain or cord, or maybe were traded in a pouch or just a fistful uh, from, from a European expedition to the indigenous people there. And for this reason, that site has come to be called by archaeologists the glass site. Okay, So also found nearby in the same sort of cluster of objects in the glass site are a silver pendant and several metal tools, including brass and iron, as well as two other beads in the Nueva Cadiz style, probably made in South America at a sort of short-lived glass workshop in Nueva Cadiz, South America, in the early 1500s. The area around this cluster of objects has been further excavated as well for foundations and post holes, and the archaeologists have determined that they were left inside a large council house, 
okay? A large enclosed circular wooden building, sort of like the large buildings at the Hopewell sites that I talked about in Ohio that may have been meeting houses or temples or both. Okay, so it was a circular enclosed wooden building surrounded by a ditch and with a hearth in the center. Okay, again, a lot like the so-called temples found in the Hopewell and Mississippian civilizations. Apparently, these various objects, all of which are of European origin, okay, indigenous Americans did not have uh, ironworking, Okay, and this silver pendant is also clearly European. These European items were all found together. They were apparently collected and kept uh, in one cluster inside this council house, suggesting that they were objects considered to be of great value. So archaeologists theorize, including Dennis Blanton, who first saw the a single glass bead that uh, that the high school student found in 2006 and who's been generally overseeing excavations at the glass site, he theorizes that these objects might have been transferred as part of a ceremonial gift exchange. Okay, And indigenous Americans all over North America and Mesoamerica had a very highly complex, important, articulated system of ceremonial gift exchange as a part of maintaining political and diplomatic relationships. So if a group of objects from Europe were found together inside a large important council house or temple structure in this Native American town, it suggests that they may have been uh, given by a group of Europeans directly to the ruling people of that society as part of a sort of uh, diplomatic interaction. Probably these glass beads were regarded as highly, highly valuable and very significant diplomatic gifts. Now, you may have heard stories, stories are sometimes told about Europeans buying tracts of territory, like the whole island of Manhattan, in exchange for just a, a few trinkets, like a few glass beads or bottles. Okay, this is a common story that's told, particularly about Peter Minuet purchasing Manhattan, in, in quotation marks. Now, this is probably not true, or it's been distorted, in the sense that uh, there's no clear record indicating that the indigenous people understood these interactions as a sale of property. Okay, they may have granted rights to live or travel or hunt or trade in a certain territory that was normal for different indigenous groups to do. Uh, it wasn't normal to give a sum of some currency and buy a territory. Uh, and more likely, these glass trinkets were used as, again, as diplomatic gift objects. And they were probably regarded as having very high value uh, because, as I said, Native American people did not have glass, so this was a totally new alien technology to them. You know, it's sort of analogous to if uh, Martians landed on Earth and had some strange new material that they used to make tools that, that we had never seen before. Okay, that sort of alien technology would be extremely desired, right? Even if 
the Martians saw them as saw it as just a sort of ordinary everyday object. More specifically, the beads that we see from the glass site are mostly blue. Okay, the outer layer is blue glass, and there are layers of red uh, to contrast and to sort of further highlight the brilliance of this sort of sapphire blue. And this was extremely rare and unusual in much of the world, including North America, to have a brilliant deep blue object of any kind. When you think about it, colors, any sort of brilliant colors, are highly desirable, right? People in all parts of the world will pay enormous amounts of money for, say, indigo dye, right? And that was one of the greatest cash crops in the world in the 17 and 1800s, was, was just indigo for dyeing cloth blue. Uh, so any sort of brilliant pigment is a highly valuable thing, and particularly blue, because blue occurs so little in nature. Okay, there are hardly any naturally occurring wild flowers that are blue. Okay, blue birds exist, but they're very rare, and their feathers can be highly prized and valuable, like the blue scarlet macaw feathers that were set into the central part of the scarlet macaw feather sash that I talked about from Utah. They, these could be highly, highly valuable objects that would be traded across enormous distances. Okay, and ancient societies in the old world would use uh, lapis lazuli or you know minerals that were enormously valuable, as valuable as gold, really, by their weight. So, to indigenous American people, it was uh, extremely rare to see anything. And let alone obtain or acquire something that sort of had the color of the sky, right? Or the color of a blue eye, right? Which was probably extremely rare uh, in North America if it was seen at all, right? So this is, um, so it only makes sense that a very important building in a very important city would have collected these objects and may have prized this small set of blue and red beads particularly highly. Now, it's significant if this gift exchange that Blanton theorizes did happen, it's especially significant that it happened here, okay, because it's been generally supposed that DeSoto's expedition traveled along <clears throat> the Piedmont, the sort of foothills along the edge of the Appalachian Mountains and basically passed through the sort of west-central part of Georgia and up into what's now the Carolinas. And it's been theorized that he traveled along that route roughly in order to have easier fords where the rivers are smaller. Okay, But this site, the glass site, is about 100 miles farther east than what historians for generations have supposed was DeSoto's route. Okay, And if DeSoto himself, or even one of his detachments or away teams, went to this town in Telfair County, that implies that he almost surely traveled much farther east, closer to the coast, and somehow was able to ford the Savannah River uh, farther east. 
And if that's true, then that might account for why so little has been found. So few clues of his expedition have been found over the years because we're not looking in the right places. Okay, and this might possibly uh, revolutionize our understanding of where DeSoto went and where more remnants of this sort of uh, conquering rampage could actually be found. Now, Blanton and others looking at the written accounts of the Entrada have also suggested that this particular site, the glass site, might be the remains of the city that was called Ichisi, which, according to De Soto, was ruled by a one-eyed prince. And it seems that this town or city of Ichisi was roughly the distance northward that De Soto claimed uh, that would more or less match the glass site. And DeSoto specifically says that this one-eyed prince behaved differently from most indigenous rulers. He was supposedly one of the few to welcome DeSoto. And the Spanish conquistadores were impressed with the great uh, generosity and hospitality of Ichisi. And they say that they stayed there for three nights, from March 30th to April 2nd, 1540. Now, this, it seems, according to Blanton and others, this would roughly match the remains that we do and do not see at the glass site, okay? So it would make sense that a polite diplomatic exchange of gifts may have taken place in this particular town, and that the European objects were left deposited in the council house, while Ichisi, in return, gave De Soto supplies that he needed, such as porters to carry uh, tools and equipment, uh, food and water, and the like, as well as temporary uh, safe lodging. Blanton further theorizes that after De Soto left, Ichisi came under attack by another indigenous group, and that some of the buildings were destroyed or burned in this later conflict, and the valuable objects in the council house were sort of broken or strewn around the central area of the house, uh, around the hearth, and that's where they were eventually left. Okay, so we can find this collection of European objects there clustered together because they were not uh, later distributed to various individuals to take to their homes or sometimes to take as grave goods to their burials, uh, which we know happened with some European objects in North America. But rather, as Ichisi was, uh, came under attack by another indigenous North American group, the objects were buried or broken and left in place. And if that is true, it's possible that these objects are all that are going to be found. Maybe someone grabbed this strand of beads and took the rest of them, but nine were left strewn on the ground, where they have now been uh, excavated by archaeologists. And Blanton theorizes this in part because there is no sign of violence by Europeans at this particular site. So there aren't things like bullets or bullet casings or uh, crossbow uh, arrows, these sort of things that you tend to find 
when there's a battle site involving the Spanish. There's no indication that any European used weapons, but there are indications, like burned buildings, that some sort of conflict took place later, but it probably did not have European Europeans involved in it. So I would actually speculate uh, it's possible if it's true, as DeSoto says, that this particular town of Ichisi was more welcoming to the Spanish. The reason for that may be because they were engaged in some kind of power struggle or conflict with other indigenous people, and they saw the Spanish as a possible ally. Okay, This is more or less what happened in Mexico with the Tlaxcala people, that they actually supported Cortes and his expedition because it was an opportunity for them to strike back at their oppressors, the Aztecs. Okay, So it's possible that uh, the Spanish ended up being sort of inadvertent uh, players in this ongoing struggle between Ichisi and other neighboring peoples, and maybe this ongoing conflict between Ichisi and other indigenous states in the area might be the explanation of why the prince had only one eye. But that, of course, is speculation which uh, may or may not be possible to confirm uh, with further excavation. We, We just don't know. But the discovery of these glass beads and the enormous importance and possible meaning of these few glass beads at this particular site in Georgia, I think reflects how small objects can end up carrying enormous meaning and significance when put into the right context, either because they're in a place where no one has ever seen such a thing before, where they're a new material, a new color, a new technology, or because they somehow were left behind for other people to find and reconstruct a story and reconstruct a world that they otherwise wouldn't know about. And so they illustrate, I think, how crucial even tiny archaeological finds can be for history and for our reconstruction of the past. So thank you for listening. And again, if you can give any support to this series, please go to my Patreon page and give whatever you can, even if just a dollar. And I'll be examining more objects, more myths of the month, and hopefully other early modern topics. And if there are subjects, questions you want to hear about, I encourage you to comment or to email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. Thank you. Oh, no.